0: We pick up today in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, and the text reads, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And Father, I come before you and I ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text. Father, help us to see uh, the context that this story sits. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would... Um, just hear your voice, Lord, that you would convict us, Lord, that you would move us along in our journey with you. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray now, Lord, that it would come alive to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this story, we're kind of looking at the rich man and Lazarus. Um, I think sometimes this story is kind of taken a bit out of context. We lose the setting, And to back up, to get the bigger picture, we have to turn our Bibles back to Luke chapter 14. Uh, Really, the story unravels in a few chapters, and it's easy to forget from one week to the next week what's happened. Jesus is making his trek from Galilee down to Jerusalem for his last Passover. He would uh, be executed. He would die on the third day. He would raise from the grave. As he's making his way there... We read in chapter 14, verse 1, that it happened when he, that's Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. They were watching him closely. And so as Jesus makes his way down, the Pharisees invite him over for a lunch. It's a Saturday. Nice invitation. Well, at this lunch, there happens to be a crippled guy that has dropsy, a disease. The Sabbath for us, for them, wasn't just like for us, just a Saturday, a day off. It was a day of rest. The the religious leaders had created a whole bunch of rules about the rules that they had made, not necessarily from the scriptures. God had set apart the Sabbath as a day of rest to spend time with your family, to worship him. Uh, But they had taken it to a whole extreme that where they became the 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 givers of the law, the interpreters and a bunch of silly little laws that they had created that if you were outside of these bounds you were condemned by them and so here they were on a Saturday for lunch there's a sick man Jesus realizes what they're doing is they're setting Jesus up to trap him to condemn him so Jesus looks at him and he asks the religious leaders these guys could tell you every I mean down to the silliest little thing like how far are we allowed to drive where they didn't have cars to to walk on a certain day well from your house you can go this far but if you take up a scoop of sand and you put it in your pocket technically you're bringing the sand from your property there so you can extend what god said. like all sorts of they made the irs look simple (laughs) to follow like with all of their stuff it was it was a bunch of crazy rules and Jesus knows their heart that they're trying to trap him, And so he looks at them and he says, oh, hey, you guys are the experts in the law. Is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And they all sat silent. These guys had everything to say about every little detail of the law, but they were silent. And they they're sitting there silent. And. They knew that if they answered Jesus, they would fall into two different traps. First, if somebody said, yes, of course you're allowed to heal on the Sabbath. God cares about people more than anything else. If that guy said that, he would have just ruined the whole trap. Like, hey, we set this whole thing up and you're telling him it's okay to heal. So now if he heals, we can't condemn him. Now, on the other hand, if they spoke up and they said, no, of course not. If you heal on the Sabbath, that's doing a work. You're working on the day of rest. Well, then they'd be exposed for their religion. That What kind of God do you serve that he doesn't care about people? He doesn't, he cares about all this stuff. So Jesus, in their silence, went ahead and healed the guy, sent him on his way. And they were like furious. Jesus goes into this teaching to help them understand through a bunch of Parables. In chapter 14, around verse 11, he begins putting the Pharisees and scribes in their place. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He starts showing them that in heaven, according to God's eyes, everything's kind of upside down from the way we as humans see it. Those that think you're on the top of the food chain, in God's eyes, you're actually on the bottom. And to the least of them, they're actually on the top. By verse 27, he starts challenging them. He says, He who does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so we know the cross is a form of execution. But the the carrying of the cross... You were submitting yourselves. It was Rome's way of saying that this condemned criminal, we're not just going to kill him, we're going to make him carry the cross to the point of execution. And by his carrying it, what it's doing is they're submitting to the Roman authority and acknowledging that Rome is right and they're wrong, and therefore they're going to carry the instrument of their death to the spot so Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, it's going to require you to submit to me, to carry your cross and come after me. That doesn't sound very good. Pharisees are getting a little upset. And in verse 33, Jesus continues. It. He says, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. At this point, the Pharisees and scribes, they were very wealthy. They used people to get money. They lorded the things of God over the people to extort them for money. And Jesus says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so now a crowd had sort of developed. It's not just the Pharisees and scribes pharisees and scribes i kind of see are like backing up a little bit and in chapter 15 verse one we see that the tax collectors and sinners basically flood to jesus those that were rejected by the religious establishment those that didn't care about the things of god those people that were not liked by their by the people of their culture they flock to jesus's feet to listen Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. They say, we want to hear more. We've never heard somebody speak like this. We've never heard somebody talk about the things of God like this. And so as they're sitting at Jesus's feet, coming to him to hear more in verse two of chapter 15, these scribes and Pharisees that initially wanted to trap Jesus, they began sneering. Who is this man? They're grumbling. Who is this man that receives sinners and eats with them? He thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he's the one who can teach about the things of of God and religion. He's just a mere sinner that doesn't keep the law. Violates the Sabbath and they're looking down. And then Jesus begins telling this parable. He told them this whole thing. There's three parables. He starts with the lost sheep. He says, which one of you, if you have a hundred sheep and one gets lost... You don't go searching for that one sheep. And when you find it, you get all excited. And then you tell all your friends about it. He says, when one sinner comes to God in repentance, the angels rejoice in heaven. And then he says, and what woman having 10 coins, if she loses one, won't get a light out and her broom and start sweeping the floors until she finds the coin. And when she finds it, she rejoices and tells everyone. He says, likewise, that when one sinner repents, and comes back to god that's how the angels react in heaven and then he tells the story of the prodigal son where there's a man very rich has two sons one son basically looks at his dad and says you know what you're an inconvenience to me i wish you were dead you're slowing up my life if you would just die and i could have the inheritance i could go do whatever i want and then the father says okay son I'll divide my inheritance. I'll give half to you and half to your brother. The one son goes out, the prodigal son, parties it up, runs out of everything. He's all alone. He's feeding the swine. That would be an abomination to the Pharisees hearing this story that Jesus is telling. And he's over there looking at the pigs eat the slop. And he says, man, I want that slop. If I would just go back to my father, he would, he would take care of me if I was one of his servants. So he goes back to his father, his father sees him, his father gives him a big hug, throws a party, rejoices that his son has returned. And as this is happening, the brother who's working, who's been obedient, the other brother. So hey, what's going on? What's this party? I didn't know there was anything happening. He gets wind that the brother had come back, and now the dad, through this big party, slaughtered the best calf. He's angry. He refuses to go in and the dad comes out and starts pleading with him. Son, everything I had is yours. Your brother is dead. Now he's alive. Why don't you come back? And in the midst of this, what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees, he's showing them how they're acting about these sinners and tax collectors that are coming to God, that they're that spoiled other brother that does that they don't understand grace and the mercy and compassion of God. And so as they as Jesus ends this in chapter 15, 15 he turns from this crowd and he looks to his disciples and he begins saying to them in chapter 16 verse 1 he tells them of another parable and i love that jesus just uses story after story to kind of bring the message alive and then he tells the story of a rich man finds out that his manager his trustee over all of his counts has been ripping him off he fires the guy and he says okay you're fired. Get all the books in order so that we can turn over the assets over somebody else to manage. This guy, as he does this, realizes, man, I'm not going to be able to get a job as a, as a trustee because I'm getting fired for dishonesty. I don't want to work like digging ditches, and I'm too proud to bank. So what am I going to do? So then he brings in all of the debtors of the, the master. He says, sit down. What do you owe? Let's rewrite your bill. Cut it in half. Cut it in 20% ultimately freeing the debtors of probably hundreds of thousands of dollars this is like corporate level loans that were indebted to this rich man and he said by doing this everybody will welcome me in their home everywhere i go then the rich man gets wind of what had happened and he sits down he kind of smiles he's like that was pretty shrewd of you you got me and we're like wait why in the world would he be happy about that Well, he's a businessman He realizes that the guy pulled a sweet move on him, put him in a real pickle. Because this guy can't go back and say, hey, what he did, you know, he did it without my consent. Because then he'd be the jerk in the community. And on the other thing, he realizes, like, man, you totally took care of yourself. And Jesus then looks at this story and says, the people of the world are more shrewd with their resources than the people of God. Hardest parable for Christians to understand. Jesus is using this bad illustration. And he goes to tell us in verse 9 of chapter 16, after he tells his parable, he looks at the disciples and he says, I, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves with means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is saying, listen, God is God. Money's not God. And so with the money that God gives you, the resources that God gives you, use that to, to win people for Christ. Because it's going to fail you. And when it fails, you're going to be received into heaven welcomed. It's this paradigm shift of how to view money. He keeps up in the ante to verse 13, where he finally says that no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, Jesus isn't saying money is evil. The Bible makes it clear that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, not that it's the root of all evil. And he says, listen, you can't serve both. And as he says this, the Pharisees are furious because there's all of these different groups listening to Jesus. And in verse 14, it says, now the Pharisees who are lovers of money were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at them. And so this is the setup to the story. We really are in part two of this story. And so then Jesus, who is being accused of the Pharisees by not obeying the law, and basically that he just trampled on the whole Old Testament, and he doesn't care about the things of God, and he's going against all of Judaism, Jesus is about to flip it on them and show them their hypocrisy. In verse 15, he said to them, so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is detestable. Or in the Greek, you could translate that an abomination in the sight of God. It says, you guys who think you're the religious ones, who think that you're representing God, you're really hypocrites. And you're living your lives in a way to make other men think that you're something special. But in God's eyes, he knows your heart, and he's disgusted with what you're doing. He goes on to say in verse 16, the law and the prophets, the word of God that was proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. So he says, listen, John, the baptism came the old and the last of the Old Testament prophets walks onto the pages of the New Testament that we have. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near be baptized for repentance, making the way for Christ. And as this new dispensation started, we see that the people are excited that they're forcing their way. All of these sinners and tax collectors, their hearts are being changed by the word of God and they're coming. They're forcing their way into the kingdom. He goes on to say in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. He says, in the law, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, there's little like tick marks. It would be almost equivalent to like our apostrophe. He said, it would be easier for the whole world to disappear than for one little apostrophe in the word of God to go away. He's like, I'm not coming to negate the law. I came to fulfill the law. I'm standing on the law completely. You are not. And then in the midst of this, Verse 18 happens. How in the world does verse 18 fit? He goes from confronting them on money to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And there's one verse with divorce. It's like, I lost your train of thought. Jesus says everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from his husband commits adultery. So what Jesus is doing is he's confronting their hypocrisy in a very real way. See, for the Pharisees, there was a rabbinic school of thought. Many rabbis said that if you want to divorce your wife, let's make some good reasons that are justifiable in the sight of men why you could get divorced. I don't know how it came about, but I imagine the peanut gallery going, oh, I got a good one. Hey, your wife burns dinner. That seems like a good reason for divorce. Looks at all his buddies. Yeah, that's a great reason. So if your wife burns dinner... You can divorce your wife, no problem. It's okay with God. Then another guy says, oh, I got one. How about if you see a girl that you think's cuter? Then you can leave your wife for her, no problem. God would be cool with that. Looks at his buddies. But you know what? That's a great one. I'm okay with that one. We have a good... Hey, we're in total unison. Everybody agrees. And they had a huge laundry list of these silly reasons of why you could get divorced. And so all of these men representing God probably were all divorced and doing all of this scoundrelous type of stuff. And then Jesus calls them on it. "You, You think I'm doing away with the law? Look what you've done to the law. In the sight of God, divorce is an abomination and you guys have turned it in like no big deal. And then he gets to the rich man. He tells another parable. He says, now there was a rich man, another rich man, sandwiched in between the rich man with the two sons. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, what's the deal with this? Purple. My wife's favorite color. It's just purple to me. It's just like we have a a wide array of colors to choose from. But in that time, to get purple, it was a very difficult process. There was a, a sea snail, and you would squish the snail, and the goop that came out was purple. And so you'd have to go find these snails, and then you'd have to squish them into linen to get the dye. And I don't even, I've never been a part of this process, but I'm, I'm just imagining like snails in the backyard, which is about the size. I mean, I don't know how many, if I had one shirt, I don't know how many snails it would take of me smashing to get the goop all over the shirt. It would, it would take a lot, And because of the difficulty of finding these snails, what it did was anything that had purple in it was super expensive. I would list a bunch of relevant, expensive clothing, but I don't know any. (laughs) So I'm like, just I don't know any. But I'm sure there's a bunch of them out there that if we saw these brands, we go, ah, I don't know how they can afford that. And so this guy didn't just have one shirt that was purple. Look what it says there. It says, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Every article of clothing in his closet was purple. The guy was rich beyond our belief. Now, this is a parable. He's telling a story. This is allegory. He's not describing a real person, but he's, here's his picture. But I think that the Pharisees would start identifying with this man. And he was joyously, I love this phrase, It's the American dream, right? Joyously living in splendor every day. That he was a rock star. He wanted it. He had it. Every day was a party for him. The terminology here describes the party that the dad threw for the son when he came back in the prodigal son. That man, every day was just a banquet for him. Verse 20, and a poor man named Lazarus. There's a poor man. His his name, Lazarus, in in the Hebrew, Eliezer, ties into the story. If you you do a study of all of Jesus' parables, you will not find another person with a name. This is the only parable where Jesus attaches a name to a person in the story. This is not the Lazarus from John chapter 11 that was raised. This is a a story. Eliezer means the one God helps which starts to to, to play off the story here. You have all of the rich, wealthy Pharisees looking down on the sinners at Jesus' feet. Jesus is taking this huge extreme, the very, very wealthiest man to the very, very poorest man. And then the very, very poorest man, he gives the name Eliezer or Lazarus, the one that God helps. Well, how does it work out that God helps this guy? Let's read more about him. Lazarus was laid at his gate, not at the city gate, that his compound of his house was so huge that the rich man had his own gate that was gigantic. The English reads that he was laid, but in the Greek, you could also say he was like thrown, that somebody like carried him and dropped him there to beg. He was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And we're not talking like when he was laid there that he skinned his elbow and there's one little cut on him. This is like an outpouring of disease that his whole body is riddled in just nasty, pussy sores. Yeah. I could really take it up a notch, but I know the stomach flu's just been going around, so we'll spare the details of... You guys are imagining. You guys, just let it come alive in your mind. And then we're all animal lovers here, right? Okay, well, no, I got ahead of myself. So there he is with all of his sores, pus oozing out of him from everywhere. He can barely move. He's longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. So here he is at the gate. He's looking over this great divide, the gate, into the compound. This guy that's having these great parties, having meat and stuff. You know, like you take one bite out of it and then you throw the rest away when there's plenty of good meat. It's like kids eating ribs. Drives me crazy. You gotta get all the meat off. But when you don't care, you're just taking one bite, throwing it down, the crumbs, and the guy just looking at the floor of this guy's house, going, Oh, if I could just have one of those little crumbs. But he had nothing. Besides, even the dogs were coming and looking at their sores. Now we're all animal lovers. Well, most of us are. I initially saw this and ah oh, sweet. Benji's coming out, licking him and loving on him. No, everybody's rejected him. But here's the puppy giving him some love. Then you were "This is." See, we gotta get rid of the idea of our family pet. You have to get the idea of more of like the dogs in Mexico, the scavenger dogs. So this guy is so like sick and weak and starving, and his wounds are oozing out the dogs are coming licking essentially treating this guy as a chew toy like nibbling on him having a little dessert after their meal in the compound it's gross this is the equivalent of the of the son that sees the food of the pigs and saying oh man i wish i could have some of that slop dogs were an abomination to the jewish people and so here the dogs are licking his wounds this is defilement An already bad situation. And then Jesus continues with the story. We have these two guys very polarized. Verse 22, now, the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. So this is, you you won't find anywhere else in scripture this description of death and being carried away. We can't, in this story, we have to caution ourselves from building an understanding of what happens after death. We, we have to remember the context. The, the story didn't surface by Jesus kind of walking down the road and a bunch of people, hey, Jesus, what happens when you die? Like, when I die, what, what happens? And he didn't begin a teaching on dying. He's confronting religion and these religious leaders who thought that they were better than everybody else and that they were casting judgment on the poor people. And so before we start building a doctrine on, okay, when you die... Do a bunch of angels come pick us up and shuttle us up to heaven to be with Abraham? So you start searching the New Testament. You're not going to find anything else. You go, well, where does this come from? Well, then you discover in the rabbinic writing, that was kind of their understanding of death. And so Jesus is using language that they understood, concepts. They were speaking to them in their understanding of things. So this poor man dies in this beautiful picture. of these being carried away by the angels to Father Abraham's bosom. A new man is introduced in the story, which we'll get to. And then we read about the rich man. I love it. Just, and the rich man died and he was buried. He was dead. They dug a hole. They threw him in the hole and we covered it up. It's kind of like there's not a whole lot more to say about him. He had a bunch of money. He died. Now he's dead. We stuck him in the ground. Kind of end of the story. All this guy had was his money. All he cared about was his money. And this is kind of the heart of what Jesus is going to start conveying in this story. Now, before we go too far and start thinking, oh, money's bad, and start preaching like the gospel of liberation, that if you have a bunch of money, you're of the devil, and you need to give it all away if you want to be right with God. This third person that was introduced in the story is Father Abraham. He's the most wealthiest guy in probably the Old Testament. Probably next Solomon probably had more. But he's very wealthy. Alistair Begg referred to him as the Daddy Warbucks of the Old Testament, which I thought was pretty funny. So there's a rich man here. So it's not the issue's not the money. The money is a total inert object. It's how they treated money. And so in Hades or Hell, verse 23, he, that's the rich man. The poor man has no speaking part. It's all about this rich man and the Pharisees listening to Jesus telling the story. And I just love how Jesus keeps twisting the knife on them. So in Hades, the rich man lifts up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So now in heaven, suddenly, or I shouldn't say in heaven, in eternity, the situation from earth is totally reversed. Here's this guy that had everything on earth. Every, everything he wanted, he had. You had the poor man sitting at the gate, looking across this man's gate into his luxury, but not being able to enter. In death, now this poor man is in Hades, in hell, looking across this great divide into heaven. And there's the poor man sitting in the bosom or in the arms of Father Abraham. Totally flip-flop story. In verse 24, this rich man, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Being called, it's, it's interesting how like the personalities of people sort of carry across into eternity. Like, I don't think that in eternity we suddenly become like totally different people. God's given us personality. and I think, I mean, this is total like speculation, but our personality comes across into eternity. And here this rich man is in hell, frying up a good storm, total barbecue. He's miserable. And he's still barking out orders. Hey, Abraham, have Lazarus bring me a cup of cool water. Can you have him bring some water over me? Because I'm a little uncomfortable over here. I remember that guy. He sat at my gate, have him dip his finger, bring it over me to cool down. And so as he's begging for some mercy from father Abraham, father Abraham replies in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. As Jesus says this, he alludes to something he said earlier. If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 6, keep your place here. Where this is real quick. You don't even have to turn there if you don't want to. But in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus gives this warning. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. And what Abraham says to the rich man, it sounds very similar. He says, hey, listen, when you were alive on earth... You had all your riches. You were totally rewarded in full. Lazarus had nothing, and now he's receiving his reward. And he's not saying that because he had money, but he's saying because all he had was his money. Money was his God. And he said, hey, if you have your money, and money's your God. You better enjoy it while you're alive. Because when you die, you are no know more enjoyment for you with your money. A couple weeks ago, I sure, maybe it was last week, I shared the story. I repeat stories, so I kind of am losing track of when I told him or when I didn't tell him. But that paramedic, he'd shared with me a very difficult situation that when he was um, working as a firefighter, he was called to a suicide scene. And he went to the suicide scene. The guy was dead, and they, but they were still trying to get his vitals. And as they flipped this guy over, inside of his jacket was stuffed about $50,000 in cash. And there was a suicide note saying that he didn't want his family to have any of the money that they'd so wronged him. And when he dies, he's taking all of his money with him. Well, the money didn't go with him. It stayed, the money became his God. It's a powerful, sad picture. And here Jesus is saying, listen, rich guy, when you were rich, all you had was your money. And it's Abraham saying it. Abraham was a rich guy and the money wasn't the problem because God was still his God. And in verse 26, and he says, well, besides all of this, there's this great chasm between Wait, I was just saying that a memory. And besides this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. He says, besides all that, it's a it's a moot point. Like even if Lazarus really was compassionate and wanted to come over to you to give you a glass of water, he can't. There's this divide. And if you want to come over here, you can't, there's this divide. It's impossible. I was raised in the Catholic Church, kind of I mean I went to Catholic Church. I can't blame the Catholic Church on my stuff, but and a lot of us have Catholic backgrounds. One of the things from the Catholic Church that I remember being told was about purgatory. That if you die and there's like this holding tank and there's this period of sorting out it's a great thought for us, you know, kind of give us a little bit of hope that that on this side of earth we can start affecting change for those that maybe didn't do it. And the Catholic Church isn't alone in this this school of thought. But the Bible makes it very clear. Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed for a man to die once and at that time to face judgment. Throughout this whole story or this whole section, Jesus is pressing upon at least my heart, hopefully your hearts as well, that our actions and our decisions and the way we live our life in time affects eternity. That decisions we make now affect then. And when we get to then, we can't undo the decisions that are made now. And it's kind of a horrifying thought, which I think Jesus wants to do, but we'll get to that part. So So Abraham looks at him, he says, listen, even if he wanted to come to you and you wanted to go to him, it can't happen. Decision's been made. Your actions then affected the now. And there's no undoing it. Verse 27, and the rich guy says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Okay, well, if there's a chasm between me and you, and he can't come to me, then I beg you, please send Lazarus to my dad's house. Go to my home because I have five brothers. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them that they will not come to this place of torment. So here this guy's in hell. And remember, Jesus is telling the story to all of these people present. Tell tell Lazarus to go back to my family. I have five brothers. And if he warns them of what's happened to me. Then they'll change their mind and they'll live correctly. They won't worship their money, but they'll worship God and they'll avoid this place that I ended up. But in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's like, it seems like bone chilling cold. So Abraham looks at him and he says, listen, your brothers, your five, they have Moses and the prophets. He's saying they have the word of God. They have the scriptures. God has revealed his truth to them. They have that. That's enough to keep them from where you are. Just like you had, but you rejected. So verse 30, the rich guy responds. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now think. Jesus is telling this story. It's a story. He's using literary... He's using a parable, allegory, telling this story to help them understand a spiritual truth. Jesus is on his way to the cross where he would die, where he would be buried, where he would rise again and proclaim the gospel. Plenty of people rejected his going to the death and coming back. And so Jesus says... That Abraham said in verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And in verse 17, chapter one, he turns and he says, but he said to his disciples, we're going to in a few minutes, look at these last five verses, which we're going to cover again next week. So he's done talking, addressing to the Pharisees through the story. And some of the things I see in this story, in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, like, what do we learn? Like, the story wasn't necessarily to teach us about heaven. There's this battle of the religious, arrogant people condemning those that God loved, that they had so strayed from the word of God that they created God to be something that he wasn't. Like all through the scriptures, I hate to break it to you, but most people think, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's this mean, angry, harsh guy. Well, if you, you haven't read the Old Testament, then all through the Old Testament, you see that God is a God of love and mercy. And he has compassion for people and he desires people to know him and to walk with him. Jesus is just a, he's a fulfillment of all of these truths. And in this story, Jesus is looking at these religious guys that were seeking to condemn him. He have the, the people, the, the tax collectors and sinners are responding to his message. They're repenting and turning to him. It's beautiful. And they're cranky and angry over it. The story's not about money, but it's a warning about money. Like not just this story, but the last few. That money is just a tool whether you have a lot of it or a little of it god is god and as we come into money as we have gifts and talents the scripture makes it clear that it's all god's and whatever he's entrusted us with we're simply managers to him and we'll give an account for how we live our lives and in this story he's trying to show this flip flop like don't be so arrogant he, he constantly like puts heaven and hell at the forefront of people's minds. It doesn't go over well in our culture. we don't like thinking about death and hell and and if we say well, hell's not real i don't believe in that, so i don't want to talk about it that doesn't cha- I could say i don't believe in gravity all day long, and I'm not going to go walk on this roof and say, well i don't believe in gravity, watch this." But that's what we do with eternity. And he's putting th- this reality at the forefront of their brains. And the Like, why is he doing that? Because he loves us. He wants us to see that our actions and our decisions and the things that we do today, it's going to affect us for eternity. And our lives are like this in light of eternity. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ecclesiastes 7.2. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, wrote it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Like I'm I'm pretty sure that if I was to do like a random poll, like in the church, say, okay, guys, after church, yeah, I read the mor- I read the obituaries today, and there's a there's a, a funeral down at Emmanuel Faith this afternoon. And then there's a. I also read that in Oceanside they're having a big block party. Everybody's welcome. There's going to be tri-tip, uh, free everything. Band concert's going to go. Pretty sure we would all opt for Oceanside, right? But Solomon tells us that to go to the memorial service is the better place to go. Now, why is that? He tells us because it's the end of every man, and the the living take it to heart. And so, I, I mean. I think, I mean, I don't, can't speak for all of us. I'll speak for myself. Like, I'll never forget my first time, like, I encountered death. I must have been, like, five years old. And it was a grandparent that died. And I was like, whoa, what, what do we do with this? Like, it just didn't seem right. I wasn't, like, even at that age, I realized that it wasn't, like, I, I wasn't created to die. And so when I was faced with death, this reality was kind of like, what am I going to do with this? Well, I'm not going to think about it. We can not think about death all we want, but eventually it's going to catch up with us. It's going to catch up with us. And God wants us to realize this so that we're prepared to face him. And so in preparing to face him, the question is first salvation. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, there is nothing that we can do by our own merit to enter into heaven. And I'm glad it's that way. It's a good thing. Can you imagine if you were trying to live your life and you may be and you may have been there that you felt like on the day you died your entrance into heaven was based on your good outweighing your bad. That that would not be good. If you think you're okay you have no understanding of how bad you really are how sinful you really are. Or Or on another element of Thing. Imagine it's a really hot day out here, and there's no water. Except for I have one bottle of it, and I get a nice cup of ice. I get a nice cup of ice. I'm like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom, so I'm gonna go to the bathroom, and I'm gonna kind of fill the water up with nice Avion water. But in the process, somehow toilet water, one little drop of dirty toilet water, goes into that cup. Like, ooh, what's one drop? Maybe I'll just add the rest of the water to it. It'll make it good. And I come out to you guys. And I say, guys, it's, it's a nice cup of cool water. It's really good. But one little like, a little bit of like sewage water. It's just one drop. But I added like two more cups to it. Like how many of us would want to drink out of that cup? Like adding good stuff to stuff that's contaminated doesn't necessarily make it better. Or if you're making a cake and you crack an egg and you have one horrible egg. The kind that smells like sulfur, the kind I loved as a little kid, not for baking, but for the smell. You could have all kinds of fun stuff with the smell of sulfur. That's for another topic. (laughs) That's in my folly category. You don't just start adding good eggs to the bad egg. But see, we do this with spiritual things. We think, well, I've got a little bit of bad, so I'll add good. That That doesn't make the bad go away. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we get this great truth about what Christ did for us. It says, for by grace. Grace means that you're given something that you don't deserve. That, That prodigal son, he didn't deserve his father's inheritance. That his father would, while he's still alive, divide his inheritance and be that gracious. For by grace, not by works, you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's clear that to enter into heaven, to enter into God's presence is based on the work on the cross of Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That he knew all of our junk that we did. That he paid for it. That he died. He was given the punishment. And his perfect life was imputed to our account, that we were given credit for his righteousness. Not that we deserve it. Like, and I always tell the funny story of that guy that used my credit card to buy a bunch of airline tickets to travel Europe. And the funny way our mind works when we reconcile our bank account, I'm sitting there drinking my cup of coffee going, hmm. I don't really remember buying tickets from London to, like, Ireland for $2,000. But, man, I'm getting older, and they say you forget these things. And I remember, like, oh, maybe I should go ask Anna, are we going to Ireland? Is there something going on? So I eventually called the bank. Called the bank, let them know, hey, uh, somebody went on a little European vacation for a couple thousand dollars, and I'm pretty sure it's not, I didn't do it. She like, what do you mean you're pretty sure? I'm like, no, I didn't do it, but I'm just trying to figure out how they did it. She's like, no problem, we'll, we'll basically we'll cancel the charges, we'll reimburse your account for that money. Okay, thank you. A couple weeks went by. Reconciling my account again. Then Orbitz, the travel company, they then deposited another $2,000 into my bank account. It was awesome. Like, this is great. Like, the bank gave me the money back, they gave me the money back. Maybe, maybe I should call them. So I remember I got on the phone with the lady at the bank. And I'm like, you know know what? There was a fraud thing on my thing. You guys reimbursed me. But then Orbitz reimbursed me also. And I'm pretty sure you guys wanted the money back. She's like, oh, I'm going to have to transfer. Let me see where I got to transfer. I'm like, well, if it's a big deal, don't worry about it. I don't want to inconvenience you. I'll, I'll deal with it. I mean, I'll clean up your mess. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. But she's like, she didn't find it funny. And she didn't transfer me. And they took the money back. But the thing is, that's what Jesus does for us with his righteousness. That's what, that's what receiving it, like, we didn't do any works. Imputation means that he imputed, he credited our account with his righteousness. And the bank's not taking it back. It's ours. But see, the story doesn't end there. And I think that Protestants have a propensity to miss this. In verse 10, it continues. He makes this big case that you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works. No one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Huh? I didn't misread that. Your good works don't save you. You're saved by grace through faith alone. But God created you to serve, to do good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so as I ask you, are you prepared to meet God? The first is, have you been saved by grace alone through faith? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? That's the only way to enter into heaven. We will also give account for how did we live our lives? How did we use our resources that he's trusted us with? We're going to enter into heaven and he's going to examine our lives and he said, What did you do with what I gave you? And this, this compel like, this is like a, a worrisome thing. Not that I'm trying to earn favor, God loves me, but I want to stand before him to hear him say, boy, you did great. Well, what about all the failures? Oh, I forgave you for that. I covered that. And then the other thing in this story is we look at this, like, challenge of eternity, we constantly see bookend throughout this like whether it's the parable of the rich man and lazarus or the story before with the wise manager there's this emphasis on the scripture the scripture god has revealed himself to us and given us his holy word this isn't like some book that clancy wrote this is that the creator of the universe gave this to us i've heard one person quip that it's you know the bible stands for Book of instruction before leaving earth? Basic instruction? It's not a Bible verse, so we can make it say whatever we want it to say. But so God gave this to us to prepare us for that day. Like, that's what what my quest in the Bible, I just wanted to learn more. When I became a Christian, I thought, well, if I just read the whole Bible, then I'll figure it out. Then I'll be good to go. It wasn't that simple. I read through it, and, you know, I read the Bible in a year. Three years later, I'd read through it. And I had, a, I had more questions than answers. B- but this the importance of this word, this is what, how I basically got forced out of my last vocation into this vocation, is a passage, the passion to teach the word. Because the word is what you need. And coming to church on Sundays and just hearing me talk to you for 45 minutes to an hour about what the Bible says, that's not enough. You need to be in there. Don't trust me on what I say about the Bible. You need to be examining it. This poor Jesus is making the point that this rich guy in hell, trying to send this Lazarus back to earth to warn his family members. I wonder how many family members of us are trying to like give that same warning to us. And if you'll go back to Luke, I'll end with I'll skip ahead a little bit here for next week. As this all happens at the at Luke 17. Jesus finished telling the parable and he looks at his disciples. So in the midst of this big crowd, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. He's now looking at the Pharisees again as he's talking to his disciples. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, that people will take this and make it say stuff to stumble those people that are before him, those that don't know the word. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. We see it all the day. There are people that don't want to come to church because somebody said something or the church did this. There's all sorts of people that manipulate what God said for their own personal gain. It's what the Pharisees were doing. And there are plenty of people who refuse to come to church to learn to grow the things of the word because of what man has said God did. I was one of them. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to him through who they come. Those people that stumble people by acting like they're God's representative and they don't represent him correctly, he says, woe to them. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. He says a millstone, this is like a 2,000 pound round rock that looks like a tire, had a hole through the center of it and he would stick a big log through it and then he would walk around it and it would cause the thing to roll around to crush olives, to make olive oil or any kind of grain and he says it would be better for a person that stumbled one of these. He's looking at the Pharisees and he's talking about the religious sinners, not about kids necessarily. But these people who are responding said, it'd be better for one of them to have this millstone. And I picture Jesus standing right by one, like patting it. Like then to have this millstone hung around their neck and thrown in the ocean or the sea, then to stumble one of these people. Jesus did not mince his words. And he tells the disciples, be on your guard. These are the apostles. These are the guys that founded the church that wrote the new Testament Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Don't turn into like religious, arrogant people that think you have it all figured out. Realize who you are before God, a sinner saved by grace, have a high view of God and it will humble your heart. And I love the response in verse 5 of the apostles as Jesus is saying this. They got what he said. And their response to him, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Lord, we need help. How are we to do this? And that's the answer is we need God. And so, Father, we do come before you with hearts, Lord, asking for help. Lord, I ask that you would help us to. To understand your words, Lord, that you would give us a passion that would drive us into your word. Father, help us to to get a glimpse of that day when we will die and stand before you. Lord, I I confess that it's so easy to, to kind of push that to the back of my thinking. Because we enjoy this life so much. This is all we know. But, Lord, help us to see that day that we will stand before you, that we will give an account. Lord, help us to understand how loving, how gracious, how merciful you are. Lord, for those of us that haven't come to know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would help connect the dots for them. Lord, that you would help them to see who you are. Father, that they would come to know Christ as Savior, that they would trust upon him. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see that we will give an account for how we um, managed our lives. Lord, help us. Um, Our flesh is so strong. And it's so easy to place our trust and our worship in things that only belong to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts. Lord, help us to walk with you. Lord, help us um, just to trust you, Lord, through just everything that we go through in this life. And Lord, as we walk with you, as we grow with you, Lord, help us to be people um, that, that mirror who you are, that we would be filled with love and grace and mercy and tenderness. Lord, we don't want to stumble anyone. We desire people to come to faith in Christ like you desire. We thank you, Lord, that you use us as your ambassadors. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.